Let's head into the Apostles' Creed. We're going to be in uh, Acts 1 for most of our time today, but we're going to be pretty scripture-heavy today, uh, so we'll be jumping around. But you're going to go ahead and turn to Acts 1. This is our fourth week in this series uh, in the Apostles' Creed. It's a creed that's kind of crystallized and made clear the core of what we believe, we followers of Jesus. And it is a product of the early church coming together, an early church that was absent of the full biblical text that you and I have. They came together and constructed these core beliefs, and these beliefs have served us well. God's people have used this creed for almost 1,900 years, and it's as up-to-date today as it was back then. And so far in this series in the creed, we've walked through these lines in the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And what we have tried to do is gain wisdom in this creed of a God that is not generalized, but very specific, A God that is not left for us to define or bend towards our own preferences, but a God that has definition. A God that is creator, father, and Lord. Father being he is personal and near. Creator meaning he is powerful and mighty. Lord meaning that he is the ultimate authority on life and wisdom. And in the creed we see three distinct beings of God. We talked about the Trinity. Three distinct beings of one God. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a triunity of God. One God, three different beings. And we said that we should be thankful that we serve a God who operates on a higher level in reality where three beings can be one and not limited to a world of yours and mine where one being has to be one being. That should be an awe-inspiring thought to understanding the scope and the size of our God. And then we walk through the birth of our Savior Christ, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and we said that this was necessary because God had to break the line of sin. We are sinners by condition, not by action. And so God conceives the Son through the Holy Spirit to break the curse of sin so Jesus was perfect from the moment of conception And in Jesus, God compels to humanity what life on earth could look like when we heed his wisdom and his thoughts and his way, what life might yield if we live for him. Christ is born, he lives a perfect life, sinless, and then he dies, and the creed says that he suffers under Pontius Pilate. This is a grounding of the gospel, of the story of Christ in history. This is saying that Jesus' death occurred somewhere in the seven or eight year reign that this guy Pontius Pilate that you can read about in your history books ruled over the land of Judea. He was tortured and killed for our sins as an innocent person, an innocent lamb to be slaughtered. God transfers onto the Son all of his judgment, all of his atonement needs for humanity and sin. God pours all the wrath onto his son for our sin. And God being so holy and perfect cannot be in the presence of imperfection or sin or disobedience. 
that he turns his face from the sun. There is a line that said that he descended into hell. Hell is nothing more than a separation from God. There is at minimum a moment in which God turns his face from his son. And his son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the word records that there was darkness and earthquakes across the earth in that moment. And it's not just the word, but there's a Greek historian named Plagion who writes of earthquakes and darkness on the earth at the time of Christ. There is an, a Roman historian named Africanus who became a believer that writes about the darkness and the earthquakes on earth when most scholars believe that Jesus died. And in that moment, he commits his spirit to the Father and descends as a victor into death and rips the gates of hell clean off. And he is raised from the dead into life again, appearing to 500 people as the conqueror of death. And that catches us up to where we are at here in week four in the Apostles' Creed. But really, in general, if we're honest, it's sort of where we tend to stop in our understanding of the work of Jesus. We are really good at celebrating his birth. We are in this season now where we are proclaiming the birth of Christ, celebrating the birth of Christ. We are moved by his death and awed and rejoice at his resurrection. And we celebrate those around Easter and Good Friday. And those three things, his birth and his death and his resurrection, tend to be what we as believers create as the summation of the work of Christ. After those events, we have a passive understanding of what Jesus is really doing. And today, we want to tackle this very important event and this regenerating belief that we find in the Apostles' Creed. This line that says this, that he ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty. If you have a sermon booklet and you've been following along with us, you'll notice that we detach the phrase, uh, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. We are not going to teach on that, that this week. That will be a sermon for next week. This week, we want to talk about the doctrine of the ascension, this essential belief in the Christian faith. And so what did Jesus do after he was raised from the dead? We know that he appeared to 500 people. Did he just then stay on earth? Did he stay on earth and have like the best one-upping story of all time? Oh, Tim, that's nice. You, uh, you requested to play for the king. Have you ever died? Oh, you didn't? Okay, well, I did. Is that what he did? No, the word records that he ascended to the heavens. And so today we want to answer three questions. Why? Why? And then this super important question, what is Jesus doing now? What is Jesus doing now and then ultimately, we'll wrap up by talking about what does this mean for me? And so to begin, we should get our eyes on Scripture together. We're going to do that by looking in the book of Acts, right after the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is what it records in the book of Acts. It says, in the first book, O Theopolis. Theopolis means lover of God, friend of God, loved by God. And so in the first book, friend of God, I dealt with you all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, 
appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is taken to heaven some 40 days after he is resurrected. 40 days on earth and then returns to the Father. So let's begin to understand why. Uh, The first understanding, the first reason of why is that the ascension was always the, the plan. The ascension was always God's plan. Understand that this was the plan from the beginning that God would send the Son and the Son would return back to the Father to his rightful position on the heavenly throne. The prophet Daniel wrote about a vision some 600 years before Christ came onto the scene about the Messiah's returning to the Father. It says this in Daniel chapter 7. It says, this is Daniel's vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and language would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." This is the prophecy of Jesus returning. Jesus himself speaks about the brevity in which he would be on earth when he's speaking to his disciples about his impending death and resurrection. In the Gospel of John chapter 16, we see the words of Jesus recorded as this. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. The plan was never about Jesus coming here to stay. And we may think in amongst ourselves, that sounds like a really good thing, that if Jesus would just have stayed here and lived with us forever, he could have answered all my questions. It seems to have checked all the boxes in our heads of doubt and disbelief that if he was really here, I would believe in him. I would trust in him fully. Listen, it's important that we understand that the return of Christ to his Father was necessary to complete the work of salvation. The resurrection wasn't the end. The ascension is necessary. It needed to happen. Because when Jesus ascends to the throne in heaven, he takes something with him. In the Revelation, John has a vision. And in the first chapter, John writes this in the vision that he saw. He says, when I saw him, I felt his feet as though dead. He sees Jesus. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death 
and Hades. Life and death itself are in the hands of our Savior. His life and death and resurrections were the means for him to descend into that he might conquer death and sit victorious on the throne as a conquering king who upholds both life and death by his power. No longer is the condition of death or hell the place that people go who are dead, not under the reign of God, not under his redemption. The perfect life of Christ, his resurrection, allows those who are of faith the means of imputed grace and righteousness, meaning you have a righteousness and a grace that's not earned but given to you so that we can stand in front of a holy, perfect God. Paul says that we are hidden in Christ. Jesus needs to be on the throne for that work to be complete. Now, the second reason that Christ ascends is this. The ascension brings the Holy Spirit to those of faith. Jesus says again in John 16, in verses 7 and 8, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus says it is to our advantage that he goes. Because Christ knows that in his physical body, he is unable to have the same effect that the Spirit will have that is not encumbered by a physical body, limited by a physical location, but the Spirit will be present and active and alive in God's people's life everywhere at all times. Consider this, if you have a desire to change what you love, to change what you prefer, to change your habits, to change your life, you have really two alternatives. You can go to a mentor, you can travel to them and seek their guidance and advice. And then you can bring that back into your life and by your own effort, try to create better habits and lifestyles. Or the other alternative is this, is you can invite that mentor to come and live with you, to be present in all of your doings, to be present in all of your interactions, lovingly convicting and upholding something better with you 24-7, advocating for a better way. Now, that may sound like a creepy, bad option, but listen, it's the option that you and I have proven we need. God's descent onto earth and into death tells me that what is wrong on this earth and what is wrong in me is not in my capability to fix. I cannot fix it. And when we are graciously given that belief and that understanding, that's where salvation begins. Nothing but God leaving the throne could do for you and I what was necessary. I am incapable of doing what is best for me. Can I just admit to you that? I am incapable of doing what's best for me. Seasonally, I have some good moments. Nothing in sustaining, nothing in longevity. I bend towards selfish pursuits. I bend towards foolish things that are not in my best effort, interest, not in others' best interest, nor are they in God's best interest. 
And so when Christ ascends to the throne, he sends the helper to be present with you, convicting and moving through the word of God. The Holy Spirit would reign in the lives of those of faith to lead them and to transform them by the Spirit through the word. We need the ascension to have the Spirit rest upon us. Now, in two weeks, we're going to talk very specifically in the line, I believe in the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit is, what he does, how he interacts with us. But know that the ascension gives us this beautiful gift of God's helper coming into our lives. And so, if Jesus is ascended, if he is seated now at the right hand of the Father, what is he doing? Like, what is he doing right now? There may be many of us in this room who have a faith that is rooted in what Christ has done, and that is great. It's rooted in what Christ has done and what he will do for me in the future. Christ died for me, and then we look forward to a place where I'm going to meet him someday or that he's going to come back. But do we account, do we marvel at the work that Christ is doing on our behalf in this very moment? Just because he ascended doesn't mean that he's up there chilling, doing nothing. He is at work today towards bringing all things back to himself, bringing all things to himself. And he's doing it by fulfilling three different offices and roles. It is the threefold office of Jesus that the Bible contends. He's in the office of prophet, priest, and king. And so let me explain how that works. Jesus is first, he's a prophet. Hebrews 1 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The role of prophet is somebody who is a messenger of God. And that is a role that the scriptures clearly put on Jesus. Jesus says it himself, for I am not acting upon my own authority. But the Father who sent me himself gave me commandments, what I speak and what I say. And his role as a prophet never ended when he ascended to heaven. Jesus is actively speaking towards his people today through the Holy Spirit of God in the Word of God. He is actively drawing the world to himself, actively growing those who believe in him by the Holy Spirit. The author of Hebrews says this, that the, the word of God is living and active. The word of God is living and active. John the disciple in his gospel says that Jesus is the word that became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so what that means is that anytime we come before the scriptures, we are interacting with the living God himself. And it is the Holy Spirit in our lives that teach us and give us knowledge of what those scriptures are saying. Anytime you learn something about God, it is the Spirit that is working in your life. Jesus is working through his word as a prophet today to speak his truth into your life. Do we believe that when we read the scriptures that we are interacting with the living God himself? 
And if we did, how would that change our habits? Jesus today is speaking us to us through the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit. The second office that he holds today is that of priest. Right now, today, in this very moment, Jesus is preparing, mediating, advocating, and interceding on your behalf. He is interceding in the heavenly realms. Do you know this? At this very moment, Christ is praying for you. He is praying for you. His prayers are prayers of perseverance for his people. Even when you don't feel like praying, he has never stopped constantly advocating on your behalf, constantly mediating, going between the Father and us on our behalf, something that we could never do in our own sin. He's declaring mine. He's mine. She's mine. They're mine. He's working to show his glory amongst his people through you. He has chosen you and I as his faithful partners to rule and reign in this earth and to carry out his plan of salvation on this planet. God is actively praying and interceding and advocating on your behalf in this very moment. And the third role that he's in, the third office, is king. He is king. When Christ ascends to the throne to be at the right hand of the Father, he is assuming the role of creator king, and he upholds it all upholds it all. He is not just king over the church, over its people. He is king of the world. And there is no earthly substitute for his kingship. His kingship demands our affection and our allegiance. You know, I don't know if many of you were alive when John F. Kennedy was a candidate to be president. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But there was a tremendous amount of conversation when he was a candidate to be president that he would be an untrustworthy president because he was Catholic. And as a Catholic, they believed that he would have a greater allegiance to the Pope in Rome than he would have to the country itself. And when he was elected president, he became the first Catholic ever elected president. And he is the last Catholic to ever be elected president. And I tell you that to say this. This world should always be uneasy about our, where our allegiance is to those who profess Christ. Allegiance not to some man-created prophet mediator in Rome, but to the very Savior himself. Our allegiance should always be to the king that sits in heaven. We are citizens of earth, or citizens of the kingdom of God first and citizens of the earth last. Those of faith should never be relegated to a political class or a political group. No earthly king or queen or president or prime minister speaks for me. The word has already done that. No earthly leader gets my complete allegiance and affection. I do what King Jesus commanded and asked and willed. 
in his word through his spirit. Am I to be a great citizen of this earth? The best. The best. Am I to submit to authority? All of it. God brought it all. Unless it contradicts the word of God. But do I sacrifice the values and the ethics of the kingdom of heaven for that of the kingdom of earth? Never. Never. Christ is the king of the cosmos. Not king of a town. He's not king of city. He's not just king of the church. He's not king of just a nation or a state. He's the king of the universe. Today, we find it easier to convince people on this earth that Jesus is God than that Jesus is king because if he's king, that means my allegiance has to change. Jesus, throughout the New Testament, makes claim that Caesar nor any other government authority is not the true king. He is the true king. To have faith means that we pledge our allegiance to him, that we want to live according to his kingdom in this present world today. So listen, wherever you are at and whatever you are doing, Christ is king. He is king whether you're doing laundry. He is king if you're fixing your car. He's king when you're disciplining your kids. He's king when you're reading the word. He is king. And he is the true king that makes no division on his people, those who trust in his name. It means that I am just as important as a pastor to him as the faithful mom who stays at home with her kids. That Christ as king is praying and interceding just as much for you as he is for Tim Tebow or any other celebrated Christian person in the world. He is king at every moment, at every second, at every time. And he is good. He is good. So what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you and I? Well, Just a couple things. Number one is this. God doesn't share your limitations. As created image bearers of God, we have some but not all of God's attributes. Some but none in full. So there is always going to be a level in your ability, whether it is to love or to have peace or wisdom, that is lesser than God's. You don't have unlimited potential. You are very limited by our physical bodies. Very limited in our ability. Our bodies need sleep. Our brains need training. Our wisdom needs growing. Our bodies need strengthening. We are very limited. Our ability to do multiple things at one time, limited and not sustainable. As good as we may think that we are, we are not that good. But our God is. He is not like you and I. The word records that God is ruling and reigning, that He's creating and destroying, that He's speaking and redeeming, He's drawing. Our God is advocating, interceding, mediating, intercessing on our behalf. The word says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
Paul writes in Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of God and who has given him counsel? Who could give him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and to him and through him are all things to him. Be the glory forever. Amen. Our God is unlimited in his ways. He's unlimited in his abilities. And he does so as the creed records, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now the creed's not suggesting that God's a lefty and that Jesus is literally sitting on his right hand. Somebody who's a lefty and there made that observation. This is saying that he's at a position of prominence, that he's equal with the Father in honor and in power and authority. And it lets us know that Jesus is doing all of this while he sits. The question for you to ponder is, what are you capable of doing while you sit? There are many things that we can do. None of us quite have the ability of being prophet, priest, and king. Not all at one time into all at one time. Look, we easily get worn out. I go out and work in the yard for a day. I'm sore for three days. If I don't sleep well the night before, I'm cranky and I want to nap. If I don't eat well, I'm cranky and I want to nap. We are limited, but God doesn't share in your limitations. He does it all to all at one time. And the illustration of him sitting is for us to understand that it is not burdensome to him at all. He is not taxed by any of it. It's not hard for him. He is joyfully doing it. There's no stress in this at all for God. He upholds the office of prophet, priest, and king, and it doesn't tire him. And so in light of that, one thing is necessary. In light of that, second reason why this matters to me is that only one thing is necessary. Let's look at Luke 10. Luke 10, there's this beautiful story about Mary and Martha. It says this, while they were traveling, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She said she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary, and Mary has made the right choice, and it will not be taken away from her. You and I are so distracted by the world and its many tasks, but in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he has done, doing, and will do, One thing is necessary, that we sit at the feet of Jesus in awe of all of who he is, an eternal God who came to earth to rescue us and then returned home to be Lord over us as prophet, priest, and king for his glory and for our joy. Mary's complaint is our life. Full of distraction and forgetfulness, 
worrying about lesser things when we could sit in, in the awe-inspiring wonder of who Jesus is. The work that he's doing for us right now, that we might sit and marvel who he is. And so listen, when life kicks itself up and you are directionless, only one thing is necessary. When you are questioning everything, only one thing is necessary. When the answer is no, only one thing is necessary. When your age finally catches up with you, only one thing is necessary to sit at the feet of Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king, who is working on our behalf. All we must do is be faithful and nothing more. Would you pray with me? Father, you are glorious. And we constantly minimize you and who you are and what you do. Lord, would you, by your spirit today, bring new knowledge in our lives that you are actively working in this moment. And you are not stressed in the least about it. That you are prophet, priest, and king over all, to all at once. And Lord, will you give us the rest to do just one thing, sit at your feet and marvel that we would trust you in all of life's circumstances, that we would seek your face amidst it all. God, grow our hearts today, and we pray this in the beautiful name of our Savior, Christ our Lord.